what are you doing? If I had a dollar for every time I have asked my children that, my IRA would almost be fully funded. It wasn't too long ago, and I would be lying if I didn't admit that it's happened more than once, but I remember the first time that wasn't too long ago where I came in from the garage. And as you walk in from our garage toward our kitchen, there's a bit of a hallway, acts as a mudroom right next to the laundry room. I'm coming down the hallway, and as I just begin to turn the corner, spread out on the floor like a massive picnic is one of my wife's tablecloths. On top of the tablecloths are four of my six children, my 15-year-old daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, my 8-year-old daughter, and my 6-year-old daughter. And what I saw surrounding all of my children on this tablecloth that was doubling as a, a picnic blanket were items like mayonnaise and ketchup and pickles, ranch, Parmesan cheese, vinegar, peanut butter, mustard. And I looked a little confused at first, and then it started to dawn on me when I saw my six-year-old daughter with a dish towel completely blindfolded. <laughs> and my 15-year-old daughter going, <sighs> and I watched in amazement as blindfolded as she was, her older siblings took complete advantage of my youngest daughter. One after the other, they began to fill tablespoons full of condiments and other food items. The object was obvious. Try to guess what it is we're feeding you. The grand prize, not so much. To this day, I don't know what she won, if anything at all. And I watch in amazement as my kids feed her ketchup and as they feed her hot sauce and different things like that. Uh, the mayonnaise mixed with vinegar, I didn't get. But at the point in which they began to fill up a tablespoon full of Parmesan cheese and give it to her, she began to gag. Parmesan cheese coming out her nose like a mist. And I'm looking at this going, what in the world are you doing? And each one of them looked at me with sheer confidence as they said, it's okay, Dad. We saw it on television. It's called the Food Challenge. And one of these YouTube influencers that record their children playing games and make millions of dollars for it, God bless them, I hate you. I should have started doing that a long time ago. I mean, I don't know if, you, I don't know if you're aware of this. There are people who make, my, how much did that one nine-year-old girl make last year? The, the one who made the most money? Yeah, you, you said like $3 million or something crazy for playing Barbies. The, these, he came up with some astronomical number, these YouTube influencers. I'm sitting going, I can play Barbies. I can do an unveiling. I can show you how to unbox these Barbies. I'll brush, I'll do whatever you want. But I'm looking at this saying, what in the, what are you doing? Like, what's the objective here? And they said, well, it's a mystery blindfold and we feed them different food and they've got to guess what it is, but it's okay. We, we saw it on television. <laughs> and I wonder in our own lives, how many times we've done something completely ignorant because we saw somebody else do it. How many times have we made decisions in our lives without giving full valuation to the weight that it would carry based on how we saw others and the decisions that made their lives. That's what we're going to look at together today as we finish our nine-month journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we're in chapter 31. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to that book right now, 1 Samuel 31. If you don't have a Bible, I simply encourage you to raise your hand right where you're at and allow one of our ushers to gift you a Bible. It's yours. We do encourage you to bring it each and every week. At this point, it's possible that your Bible opens readily to 1 Samuel 31 because we've spent so much time this year in 1 Samuel. But if you're looking for it, the easiest way to find it really is in the table of contents at the front of your Bible. Look for the name or the title 1 Samuel and it will assign a page number to it. 
Or you can start at the beginning of your Bible with the book of Genesis and begin to work your way to the right. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then you'll hit 1 Samuel. This is a historical narrative that we've been studying. An interaction that we've been observing between Yahweh God and the nation of Israel, his chosen people. And in this historical narrative, we've seen how not only they interact together, but we've seen relationships in humanity. Decisions that have been made and the impact on others. We've been introduced some, to some amazing and some incredible characters, including Eli, the priest, and Samuel and his, his family, and to Saul, the first king over Israel, and then to David. Now, what we need to understand as we continue in our study, finishing out the book of 1 Samuel today, is that the nation of Israel has gone away from a theocracy, theo meaning Godocracy, leadership of. They have allowed God up until this point to be the leader and the king of their lives. But there comes a point in time where the nation of Israel look out on the vast expanses of the nations surrounding them and they begin to see the lives being lived by other nations and want to model their behaviors after these other nations, which means that they are willing to compromise their convictions. They're willing to move away from God as their king, God as their Lord, God as their ruler, righteous on the throne of their lives, and they call for, they demand a monarchy. And we move into what we know as a dynastic monarchy, dynastic in that there's going to be a dynasty forged that we'll see unravel. They want a human being to reign over them and to give leadership and direction to them because that's what they see everybody else doing. They go into it haphazardly. They go into it completely blindfolded. They don't know what they're really asking for and they're not quite sure what it is they're getting into. All they can really say is, we see others around us and this is how they do it and so we want to do it like they do it. We've learned in this story that walking away from obedience to the Lord, their God, has been a detriment, not a success in their lives. And today, we're going to see the unraveling in that Saul, the first king appointed over Israel, will lose his life. As we turn there, let's begin our time together in prayer. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the responsibility to rightly divide your word. And I pray that I would do that with authenticity and with accuracy. And that I would do that in ways that matter and that make sense. I pray that you would meet us where we're at, that you would capture our attentions, and that you would draw out of us our affections for you. Father, we're going to jump into this text that is difficult multiple places along the way. And as we do, I pray for vulnerability, not just for myself, but for each and every one of us. God, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would give us permission, even encouragement, to be vulnerable this morning, to wrestle with some hard questions. And ultimately, to end in surrender. To wave our white flag in favor of your way over ours. In favor of your leadership in our lives. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 31 Right up to the end, but I do want to give you a heads up now if you want to take some time to find it. We're going to finish out our time together today in Romans chapter 12. That's in the New Testament. It'll be seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. I'll give you time to get there toward the end of our time together today. Let's jump into these short 13 verses together. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Now keep in mind that there are multiple wars being waged at the same time. David, if you were here last week and we were looking at 1 Samuel 30, David and his 400, not 600, because 200 men were too tired and overwhelmed to go to battle. So David and his 400 men that were willing to take up arms and fight with him, they are on the lookout, scouting and, and on the attack, on the offensive, looking for what would become the Amalekites who have gone in, and they have taken David and his military men, their wives, their children, their livestock, and all their goods. And they've used it for their own gain and their own benefit. 
David goes before the Lord and he says, God, is this what you'd have me do? Pursue them? Do you want me to go after them in battle? And God answers. He says, yes, David, go. You will have victory. So there is one war being waged. And while that's going on, there's another war that's taking place between two armies that have been at battle for years and years and years. And that's a war between the Israelites, God's chosen people, and the Philistines. Now we see here that Saul is going to lead the Israelites in a retreat. The antithesis of where we've seen Saul so many times before. He's always pursuing David. He's always on the offensive. He's always looking to attack and to to kill David and his followers. But now Saul in unfamiliar territory is on the retreat. He and his men and they find themselves at the base of this mountain. And now up the side of this mountain called Gilboa, and they one after the other begin to fall, slain, dead, on the side of this mountain. Verse 2 tells us that the Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. And so there's a couple of things here that I think we need to address. Number one is, this is what we would know as come to pass. Go back to 1 Samuel 28. And Saul, the first appointed king over Israel, is going to continue to demonstrate his willingness to compromise the Lord's convictions on his life for his own personal gain, for his own personal benefit. What do I mean? Well, listen, the opposite of God is the enemy, or Satan. The opposite of glorifying God is glorifying self or, or the things of the earth. The opposite of being spiritually filled by the things of God is pursuing evil spirits and the things of the enemy. Saul is willing to compromise his convictions where God is the central of his life. He's the center point, the, the focus We've seen times throughout the historical narrative of 1 Samuel where Saul seems to get it. Moments where he pursues the Lord. But on the by and large, he's willing to compromise his convictions for personal gain. And in 1 Samuel 28, we see that he ends up in Endor and he's there with a medium. He's literally called on a, a, a witch doctor, as it were. Someone that can drum up spirits a tarot card reader, a Ouija board player, somebody who is messing with the spiritual realm. And it's sick and it's twisted. And in that, Saul asks for the spirit of Samuel, prophet, priest, and judge, to appear. In this conversation, Saul wants to know what's going to come of him, his life and his legacy. Much to his demise, what he learns is that his life is but hours from ending. Not only his life, but the lives of his sons and his legacy. The second thing that I want to really think about here are the three sons of Saul. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. If Jonathan rings familiar to you, it should. We've learned a lot about Jonathan. He is a character that can be trusted. He's loyal to both his father and to David. He is a subject to the king, but he is subjective in that he, he looks at life through the lens of Yahweh. He wants to glorify God, and he does so as a loyal, faithful servant. He honors his father while still looking out for the best interests of David, who's on the run. Not once, not twice, but at least three separate times, we'll see this person, Jonathan, make a covenant, a vow with David to protect him, to look out for him. And that when David, God's appointed and anointed heir to the throne will come into place, that Jonathan will become subservient to David and stand by him as king. 
This might not sound like a big deal, but you have to understand culturally, this is massive because Jonathan in a dynastic monarchy is rightful heir to the throne. When Saul dies, all the opulence, all the wealth, all the riches, all the mighty military strength and power, it it befalls to Jonathan next in line to the throne. So the humility, the ability to say, God, I want to honor you I want to glorify you, and I'm going to do that by demonstrating the ultimate act of humility is incredible. He sets aside his right to the throne to usher in God's best for the nation of Israel. And he does so with not only humility, but with enthusiasm and loyalty. Jonathan is an incredible friend, one that you and I should envy for and one that we should look to be to others. To bring honor to those around us and glory to God, that's a friend. So when I look at this story, and I read that Jonathan is one of the three that die, in my, in my flesh, I'm inclined to, to, to cry foul. He doesn't deserve to die. What's wrong with this picture? This man has been nothing but faithful. And here's the lesson I think we all need to learn from this. Jonathan doesn't die because of his choices or decisions or indecisions. He dies as a byproduct of the sin of his father. That has weighed heavy on me this week. That the decisions that you and I make are bigger than ourselves. God has given each one of us Whether you realize it or not, God has given every one of us a sphere of influence. A husband or a wife, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter, a co-worker, a friend. Each and every one of us has been given a sphere of influence that we are responsible for. And what I know as a father And as a husband and as a pastor, I know all too well that the decisions I make, they don't just impact me. They impact we. They impact my son and my daughters and my wife and my community. The decisions that we make are bigger than ourselves. And I look on this and I sit here and think, man, what what an incredible responsibility it is to know that the decisions we make have such tremendous impact on those around us. And if that feels heavy to you this morning, it should. It should. Verse three. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely, which means that the arrows have now penetrated his armor bearer and his own armor and his shield, and he has been hurt, significantly hurt. Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. Even up until the point of death, Saul is consumed with himself, with his own reputation. He doesn't seek the Lord's leadership in his life. He doesn't want to know what God's best is for him. He only wants to do what is beneficial for him. And let me explain just a little bit. Culturally and historically, what we know now, not just between the Philistines and Israel, but nations at large, if one king was captured in battle, the victorious army would oftentimes make a living trophy out of that king. We see this in Judges with Samson. Some of the things that happen that could possibly happen to Saul as a byproduct of his failure and his defeat in this battle, it's possible, even likely, that they would gouge out his eyes, make him wholly dependent on others to lead him around. It's highly likely they would have cut off his thumbs and they would have tortured him and they would have stripped him of his armor and his royal robe and his signet ring and they would have stripped him into his nakedness and would have wounded him. 
They would have chained him by the neck, maybe run a a ring through his nose and chained him by his nose and drug him around by his hands and his feet, parading him in the streets that were occupied by the Philistines and surrounding communities. Saul, even unto death, didn't want to give them the satisfaction of being able to make a mockery of him. And so rather than address the real issues that have plagued his life up until this point, he literally looks to his armor bearer and he says, take your sword and run me through. Kill me. Take my life. I don't want to be a human trophy. I don't want to be the reason for someone else's success. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16 that pride comes before a fall. And we've seen time and time and time again that this man Saul is filled with pride and it has always led to the same outcome. He's fallen over and over and over again and now up into the point of death. But let's lean in and look at what his armor bearer doesn't do. It says right after he says, come so they don't taunt me and torture me, his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. Why is that the case? He's received a commission, a command, if you will, from the leader of the military from the king of the nation of Israel. Assuming that this man is from the nation of Israel, this armor bearer responsible for caring for the life of the king, he would have been well familiar with the Mosaic laws, not the least of which are a part of what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the most egregious in our society of those Ten Commandments, and I say egregious in our society, because according to Scripture, all sin separates us from God. Those little white lies and adultery, in God's eyes, they separate us from Him. But according to the standards of our culture and context, they carry different weight. So this man looks at Saul's request, and because it's not a command of the Lord, it would be murder. And one of the commands that we know is that you shall not commit murder. And so here we see that this man is afraid and would not do it. My question is, are you more afraid of what God thinks than you are what each other think? Are you more concerned about what God thinks about your life, about what you do or what you don't do, than you are the people around you? You see... We've got to be really careful who we allow to speak into our lives to encourage us and influence us and instruct us. First Corinthians says bad company corrupts good morals. We've got to be really intentional about the people that we allow to speak into our lives and to be sure that what they're asking us to do is consistent with the call of Christ on our lives. This man now is dealing with a decision do I honor God or do I honor humanity? And it says that he was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. He took a sword and he put the handle to the ground, the sword upside down, and he literally fell headlong into the sword in attempt of taking his own life. Verse 5 says that when his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. There's a lot that I could unpack from that one verse, but the thing that I think we need to, to pay close attention to is who do we find our identity in and who do we let demonstrate how to live our lives? This man's identity as, a, as, a, as an armor bearer was tied directly to the life and death of Saul. His whole identity, he was living vicariously through the commands of the king. And now that the king is no more, he had nothing. And the second thing that we need to look at and lean into is he only did what he saw modeled for him. It's called learned or modeled behavior. It's a part of human nature. We do this from infancy. I see in this room two of my friends and both of them holding their baby boys. Both my friends are massive individuals and their baby boys look so tiny in their arms. Guys, if I've learned anything over... A lot of years of being a dad, it's that our kids learn not from what we say, but from what we do. Modeled behavior. 
You guys are two great dads, and I'm excited for you both to get to enjoy these moments. I, I really wish my wife would not be so selfish and would let me have another kid, but she said something about if I want to go ahead and have the baby myself and raise the child and do all the diapers myself, then I'm happy to go ahead and have a child on my own. Not sure how that's going to work out for me. Model behavior. Who are you modeling your behavior after? You've got to be really intentional when you invite people to speak into your life. Let's look at the, the rest of this. Let's look at verse six. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. Again, you can read from 1 Samuel 28. This is a fulfillment of what had been prophesied, what had been told about. Verse seven, when the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. And so the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. Let me just explain it to you in short. When their national leader that they had begged God to give them was no more, they had no idea what to do. Anecdotally, it was the blind leading the blind. Now, I want you to hear me say this, and I want, I want you to be encouraged. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are not two separate books of the Bible. They're actually one long historical narrative broken up in a manner that is consistent with how Scripture is broken up so that we can better read it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. But it's a big continuation. So my encouragement is, Please, we're going to take a season off of the Old Testament. We're heading into a series next week, as Brooke already told you about, called Worship, where we're going to look at what worship is, what we are called to in terms of worship. And then I'm really excited after that, we're going to do more of a Christmas series, a traditional series called In the Waiting, where we're going to experience Advent together. Super stoked about that. And then, can you believe it? We'll be in 2022 by then, and we're going to start a whole new series in January, and I am excited about everything that I think God has in store for us in the coming years. But I encourage you to read the rest of the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. Because what we see now is that the nation of Israel is at a complete loss. They've lost their national leader, which means that they've lost their identity. They don't know what to do. I've, I've, I've wrestled with this. I've heard stories, more than one recently, about couples who've been married Five decades, six decades. And the question is, when one of the spouse dies, what will the other do without that spouse? And on the surface, I, I get that. I don't know what Stacy would do without me. <laughs> She'd be just fine, I promise you. I look at it and say, what would I do without Stacy? But if I'm being really honest, Stacy's not my savior. And my identity cannot be wrapped up in her. A part of who I am, a part of how God has blessed me to get to live my life, is that I get to be the husband of Stacy, a daughter of the king, one that I am called to lay down my life for. A part of my existence here on earth is that I get to be a dad to Autumn and Caden and Talon and Ryan and MJ. But that's not who I am. Who I am has to be in Christ alone. The nation of Israel doesn't know what to do when their national leader that they asked for is gone. And what you're going to see is David is now going into 2 Samuel. David is going to end up in the place where God has anointed him. He will be king over Israel. And you're going to see Israel begin to build on their successes. And God's going to bless them. And then you're going to see that David in all the blessings will become not too dissimilar to you and I, apathetic. And he'll give way to temptation. And it's what's known as the cycle of sin. You'll see the nation in absolute turmoil. You'll see a division between the northern and the southern kingdom. You'll see division in the house of David between him and his son. Here, the nation of Israel doesn't know what to do when their man-made king is dead. So here we go, verse eight. The next day when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul, his three sons on Mount Gilboa. They literally were going out to pillage, to steal the spoils 
They were taking pocket watches and they were taking armor and gold and jewelry and swords off of these dead bodies as plunder, as spoil to take back for themselves and to build upon their own wealth. And standing over and walking over these dead bodies with a greater sense of pride and self-confidence and even a self-assurance in their strength and their military might. And when they get there, they are surprised to see that Saul, the king of Israel, and his three sons are dead with him. Now they would know the distinction or the differences between Saul and his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, because of the way that they were dressed they would have worn priestly garments, or not, excuse me, uh, royal garments. They would have had armor that was different. They would have had signet rings on. There, there could have been any number of indicators that let people know that these men were different. And so now, not only do they have spoils for themselves, but they have spoils for the entire nation. So look what they do in verse 9. They cut off Saul's head and they stripped off his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, which is literally the feminine god of the Philistines. It was a goddess of sex and fertility. And they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshon. Uh, this seems so weird to us. But culturally, this isn't the first time we see this, is it? In 1 Samuel 17, the nation of Israel is at war against the nation of the Philistines. They're at odds. They come down to this bowl. And every day, this giant from Gath named Goliath shouts out, Who will come and fight me? Yelling out murderous threats and taunts against Yahweh and the people of Israel. David, this boy, this shepherd boy comes and says, who does this giant from Gath think that he is that he could defy the army of the living God? And he goes to battle and he ends up killing Goliath. And what does he do? He decapitates him. He takes his head and he brings it back and it energizes the, the military. They see this military victory and the Bible says that they charged the Philistines and overtook the Philistines. They ran them out and for miles and miles they, they pursued them and killed them. And then before Saul, this head is brought as a trophy and it's a standard that is set to say, see this? See what happens when you come against the God of Israel? It's a trophy. And they'll take and they'll keep Goliath's sword. In fact, we see that David, when he's on the run, will end up before a priest in Nob. And he'll end up taking the sword that was Goliath's sword. And he'll use it in the wilderness on the run working towards self-preservation. This is, this is not unique to, to the Philistines or what's going on. This is very commonplace at this time. Now what they did by taking Saul's body and the body of his three sons back to this community, they end up hanging their bodies at the most visible point in the city. It's what you and I would consider 16th and Main here in Blair. It's really funny to, to, to think about like a major thoroughfare in Blair, but if there were such a thing, it would be 16th and, and Main Street, right there on the corner of Fernando's and across the street from uh, the communication building. What is that called? That's what I said, ABB Nebraska, right there, 16th and Main Street. Notice that my, my number one landmark was food. <laughs> And they placed these bodies there so that everybody from the region, both the Philistines and outsiders walking by, would see the military might. This is a trophy. But they didn't stop there. They even took Saul's armor and his sword and that of his sons, and they put it inside of this temple that they had built and erected for a pagan goddess, Ashtoreth, this feminine goddess of sex and, and fertility. And inside this temple, the most egregious things that you can imagine would take place. If I told you, and I will not because there are PG ears in here, what they sacrificed inside that temple, it would make your head spin. But they put this armor inside of the temple, so kind of as a mausoleum or as a monument, as a, as a museum, that when people would come in and go out, they could be proud of what the Philistines had accomplished. It was a huge trophy in their lives. 
And this is also not the first time we've seen this. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is captured and it's taken to Ashdod and it's placed in the temple of Dagon, the fish god. What a really cool idol you're going to make. A man-made, mermaid, man-made. And next to, in Ashdod, next to the temple, or next, in the temple next to, to Dagon, they're going to place the Ark of the Covenant. And the next day they come and everybody is going to go look and see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. But what they find is that Dagon is face down. And so the priests run in and they scurry and they, they, they set up Dagon again right next to the Ark of the Covenant. But then they come back the next day and now Dagon is face down and he's decapitated. His body is literally cut up. And they say, look, 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 take this Ark of the Covenant because it came with all kinds of really unsightly tumors. Remember we talked about that? In the original word, it's what we get hemorrhoid for. And so those are really bad tumors, if you ask me. And they take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and they say, we don't want it. Give it back to the Israelites. We see over and over and over again these temples that are erected and these trophies that are put on display. And before you and I are too quick to judge, let's start by getting sober and asking of ourselves the idols of our lives. And what a slippery slope idols become. The Bible says we can't serve two gods. Now it's referring to money, but it's consistent with anything that is taken away from the Lord. Because we'll end up loving one and hating the other or hating one and loving the other. And sometimes, even the most innocent things in our lives quickly become idols before we realize it. I I didn't plan on sharing this this morning, but the Lord laid it on my heart the first service and I even went back to one of my staff members' offices in between and prayed, Lord, do you want me to share that again? Because this is a really hard story to share. I want to give you some anecdotal evidence from my own life. And not as a point of pride or because I want you to be, I don't want you to think anything of me, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, one of the things that you learn in seminary is not to be too vulnerable when you preach because you give the people ammunition. That's the stupidest advice I've ever heard in my life. Many of you know my life and my journey. For those of you that don't, I want you to know that it wasn't too long ago that I was 130 pounds more than I am right now. Over the last six months, I found that I was really kind of not in a healthy place with food. I was using it to cope with emotions and I just really like food. I like the way it tastes. And I'm an all-in kind of guy. Don't bring me a piece of cheesecake. Don't insult the person who baked it. You bring me the cheesecake. I'll, I'll tell you when I'm done. If I go to a Brazilian buffet, you don't tell me, you just keep coming. If it flips over to red, it's probably an accident. Those of you who've never been, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Those of you who do know, you know what the meat sweats are. It's real. Six months ago, I made a decision to start training for a competition. I made the decision this week. I'm right there. I'm six days away. Next Saturday, I'm supposed to be at this competition. And I have exhausted a lot of resources to get where I wanted to get. I mean, when I say, I am up every day, twice a day. I'm up first thing in the morning doing fasted cardio for 45 minutes. That means before I ever put a thing in my mouth, I'm walking on the stupid stair stepper. If purgatory exists, that's it. And then I come home and I, I literally calculate everything I eat. I live and die by the food scale. If I can't weigh it, I don't put it in my mouth. If I can't track all the macros and the micros with it, and so I've been living like this for six months. I should say existing like this for six months. But I reached the pinnacle of my goal. I literally, I was right where I wanted to be. I took a scan four days ago that did a whole scan of my body, my weight, my body fat percentage, 
the, the circumference of my waist and my arms and my chest and everything. And I realized as I was preparing for this message that what started off as a good thing. Now, let me explain. The Bible says that, that health and fitness is good. In fact, Paul says there is some measure of good in physical training. I started this because I am a competitive person and I need something to work toward. Otherwise, I just kind of go through the motions. Anybody else? So I needed something to work toward, but that quickly became all that I thought about. It informed all my decisions about where I met with people. And the number of times I awkwardly had to tell people, no, you go ahead and eat. I'm not going to. I have my tuna fish and sauerkraut waiting at home with my yellow mustard. Mm. It's amazing what starts to taste good toward the end of this. I'm just saying. What I realized that what was intended to be a good thing became an idol in my life. I thought about this, food. I literally would go to bed thinking about weight training the next day. How many calories I had to cut to get where I wanted to get to. And what people, even in this routine that I was working toward, what people would see in me. And I finally had to say enough is enough. And so, I mean, quite literally, I have an email in my inbox with all the information about next week's tournament and I'm not going. Now, why do I tell you that? Not because I want you to think that I'm in, I don't want you to, I'm really, honestly, I don't care what you think. I tell you that because I'm hoping that my vulnerability will give you permission to be honest about the idols of your life. I'm not proud of this. I, I really am not. I, am, I, am I proud of the accomplishment of losing that weight? Yeah. I mean, there was a point where I was pre-diabetic. There was a point where my blood pressure was 170 over 100. There was a point where, I mean, quite literally, I could wear the pair of pants that I used to have twice. I could put them on, wrap them around, and step in them again. And so I'm, 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 I'm happy with the, the, the fact that I've, done what I can do to help sustain life this side of heaven while it's here. But the opposite of that is I made a God out of it. And I'm not proud of that at all. Does that mean that I'm going to stop working out? Not on your life. But it's going to be within balance and with Christ at the center of it all. With Christ at the center of it all. I went from one unhealthy extreme to another. So if I'm being honest about the idols in my life that started off with nothing but good intentions, what about the idols of your life? What, what temples have you built for the idols that you've created and what trophies do you have to show your success? I don't want to step on any toes here. I don't know your personal stories, but I want to say that this is how easy it is. Finances. We can make an idol out of our finances. We can erect a temple we can call our finance whatever God we want to call it, and we can begin to, uh, to, to rack up trophies to show how successful we've been financially. But if it takes away from the utter reliance on the Lord that says, the Lord shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory, the hard truth is, finances is an idol for you. If you could lose it all right now and it would devastate you, like you wouldn't know what to do, it's become an idol for you. What about your kids? Does living vicariously through their choices, has that become an idol for you? Through their academics or through their achievements? Does what other people think about your kids equate to value in your own life? If so, then I would tell you that I probably think you wrestle with idolatry in the form of family. Even in religion, if we keep track of the number of times a day we do something so that we're sure to do it the number of times we pray the number of times we read the number of times we fast the number are we doing it for the right reasons and if not then we've made religion an idol an idol the truth is anything that that commands that demands our affections and our attentions that is greater than god is an idol in our lives and you can tell where the idols of our lives are if you'll do an honest assessment of your life and look at where you spend your time, where you spend your mental uh, properties, and where you spend your money. What temples have we erected for the idols of our lives 
And what trophies have we put on display? I hope that the time that we have together today at the end will help address this in our lives. Now, verse 11, something unique happens. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them back to Jabesh where they burned the bodies. Then they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted for seven days. Who are these people from Jabesh-Gilead? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel 11, you'll read a story about the Ammonites and how the Ammonites have infiltrated a community near Judah of people from Jabesh. And they have given the people of Jabesh one of two options, to either die by the sword or to surrender, but they would have to gouge out one eye and live in complete submission to the Ammonites. Saul hears about this, and in one of a rare occasion in his life, he goes with his military and he fends off in favor of Jabesh. He defends the community against the Ammonites. Now in death, the people from Jabesh want to honor what he did for them and for sparing their life. And so they go with the mightiest men they have from the community. They go in the disguise of night. They take down the body of Saul and his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. They take them back to Jabesh. They will burn their body, which was not consistent with culture at that time. But what we can understand is that they likely didn't want Saul or his sons to fall back into the hands of the Philistines and they continued to make a mockery of them. So they took away every opportunity for that, burned their bodies and their belongings and buried their bones underneath a tamarisk tree. And then they went about fasting for seven days, a, a process of mourning. What can we learn from this tragic tale? of a king that had been appointed by God who was head and shoulders above the rest, who was the best looking man in the entire community, who had a a false sense of self when he stepped into this and he said, who am I? I'm just a, a son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin and we're the least of these. What do I have to offer? What can we learn from a man who had an appointment by God to do great things that chose to make himself his idol? Saul made an idol of himself, of what people thought about him, of what people saw in him, of what people would do for him. And in the middle of this tragic story, this tragic tale, I think maybe the greatest thing that we can learn from this is that the best thing that we can do to the idols in our lives is let them burn. Anything that separates us from the love of God. Now, I mean that figuratively. If I drive by your house today and it's on fire, you do not get to blame me. I have no culpability in that. But understand what I'm saying is that maybe destruction is the best place to be right now. Maybe letting the Lord get a hold of your heart and tear down the idols of your life to the point where you don't know what to do will get you back to the place where you live wholly surrendered to him as Lord of your life. Go back to Romans now, all the way to the end of the Bible. Seven-eighths of the way through in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans chapter 12. Two verses. Little context, Paul is writing to a regional group of followers of Jesus that consist of both Jewish converts and Gentile followers of Jesus. They're learning to live cumulatively, collectively. How do they merge? How do they bring together all of these different cultures? How do they bring together their their variances, their differences, their experiences, their expectations, their religions? How do they bring everything together? And they're dealing with really difficult questions. And Paul looks on this regional community of followers of Jesus as a pastor looks lovingly on his congregation with love, with nurture, wanting to protect them, but not pulling any punches. He shares the whole truth and the hard truth. He shares about life in Christ and that that is the only way that we experience eternity in heaven. And he paints this picture, this very real picture of a heaven and of a hell. And as he does, he shares with this community that has allowed false religion into the doors of the church. 
He shares with this Christian community the false teachings that have been brought into the church. He shares with this Christian community the idols that they have been holding on to. One hand holding tightly to the door of the church and the other hand holding tightly to the idols of the world. And Paul writes this brilliant letter and he writes about worship. Let's look at this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he says, and so... Dear brothers and sisters, and whenever it says, and so, or therefore, I encourage you to go back and look at what was happening right before this. We're just going to look at 1136, Romans 1136. For everything comes from him, and everything exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever, amen. Paul has just finished telling the church in Rome, listen, everything that we have and everything that we're called to do exists by the power of God and is intended for his glory. Now, because of that, he says, also, dear brothers, I plead with you. He's urging them. If, if, if he were there in person, I, I think that he would run up to each one of them and take them by their shoulders and, and shake them up a little bit, trying to get their attention. He, he wants them to lean in and pay attention. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. What he's dealing with now is an argument over sacrifice. This, there is a system or systems, plural, of religiosity that is plaguing the church. And, and as is true with their cultures around them, there is a process of purification. There is a process of sanctification. There is a process of celebration. They will bring different things to worship. They will bring different things to sacrifice. They will bloodlet animals and they will parse out the animals and burn them on an altar as a sacrifice. But the problem is everything that we have to offer from this world is inadequate or dead there is no life to it everything that they're bringing into the temple ends in death their very best is dead I've said this and I'll keep saying it the Bible says that our very best is little more than filthy rags before God but here's what God says guys it's not about what you bring to worship and to sacrifice what we are called to do is to let the way we live our lives be a living sacrifice holy which means set apart and pleasing to God for this is our true aspect of worship we have confused what we do on Sunday morning as worship. This is celebration. Let me explain what I think Sunday is. And I've done it before, but I want to say it again. Sunday for the church, the ecclesia, is a, it is literally a, a culmination of all of our individual worship Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday in our own homes and in our own spaces and in our own intimacy with Christ where we come together collectively and we celebrate we celebrate the goodness of our God. But this is not worship if it is devoid of proper theology and doctrine. It's little more than a concert where we're singing and making music. While I love everything that we do here as a church, the kind of worship that God finds pleasing is the kind of worship that begins and ends with how we live our lives. Are we an hallelujah kind of people here in the building? And a begrudging kind of people once we get to the parking lot? Once that first person cuts us off in traffic? Once our wife says something we don't like? Or our children say something that we disagree with? I, I just, I'm telling you, what Paul is doing here is he's telling this church, look, you've got a lot of different approaches to worship, but real worship is how you live your life. It is so important that that's why we're actually dedicating an entire series to worship. We're going to look at different aspects of worship, what worship is, what worship isn't, and how we're called to be worshipers as followers of Jesus starting next Sunday. Don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. But look at verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. There are far too many of us living our lives with blinders on 
with the attitude of, don't worry, we've, we've, we've seen this on TV. The decisions we make, we're making because we saw others make them. We saw it on a social media post or we heard it on the news. We, we saw our neighbors do this. And we walk around voluntarily with our eyes, our spiritual eyes, covered up. And the credibility that we give to others, it's exhausting. And our attitude is, well, we've seen it work for them. Can can I tell you, don't ever make a decision about the way you live your life based on somebody else's social media. I have yet to find somebody who creates a social media account that shares what was happening right before that picture was actually taken. You know, where the toddler takes the booger and shoves it in the mom's mouth and the mom throws up. Or the part where the mom stands there and she's getting ready to take the 27th picture for the day and she says, guys, if you just straighten up and smile, we can go get lunch, just smile. This is for a Christmas card. I want to make another creative memory. Let's make it. You grew up in my house too? Who are you allowing to lead you in your life? How are you making the decisions that you make? As followers of Jesus, rather than saying, I saw him do it, or I saw her do it, or I saw it on TV, or I even heard that preacher say it, if we want to know, if we want to know what is consistent with Christ, it begins in his word. It begins in his word. If anything that we're doing is inconsistent with the word of God, then I promise you, it is not of God. And the only way that I know to transform the way that we think, you can't just stop one behavior. You've either got to modify it or you've got to replace it with something else. If we've been thinking one way for so long that is sin-filled, the only way to change the trajectory of how we think is to rewire our brains to think like Christ. And we do that in his word, sola scriptura, let the word of God do the work of God so that we can abide in the will of God. Do not be transformed, or do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every week, every week we go through and talk about culture and context in the Bible and we tell you what text we're going to be in and how to find it. And I know that it seems monotonous, but I promise you as your pastor, we have a reason for doing that. We tell you how to find 1 Samuel and where to find 1 Samuel because our hope is that you will not just sit here and be baby Christians like Finding Nemo, mine, 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 waiting to be spoon fed and that you will take what God has given us here and rightly dividing his word. And you will use the knowledge to continue to study Monday through Saturday. This is your spiritual act of worship. To test and approve God's will in your life. And the only way you need to do that, know to do that, is if you live transformed lives. Mobilized on the mission of Christ. I'm going to tell you something that my dad said to a friend of mine in high school. I'll leave you with this. The band's going to come out and we're going to worship. Hindsight is kind of funny. But in the moment, I didn't think it was. I was dating a girl in high school, and one of my friends asked one time, he's like, man, I don't see what she sees in you. Good friend. And my dad piped up really quick. He said, oh, no, it's not what she sees in him. It's that she can't see around him. That's how big I was. But I wonder if that's not true of the idols in our lives, that we can't see around these graven images that we've made to the greater things of God. My prayer today is that you will be uncomfortable. My prayer today is that you will wrestle with whether or not you've got any idols in your lives, even the best intended ones. My prayer is that you and I will live you and I will live as individuals transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word and the work of God to be able to test and approve what God's will is for our lives, which is good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had together to study this text and to lean in 
together. It's been uncomfortable, Lord, at least for me. But I thank you that you're a gracious God who is quick to forgive and to restore. And while my prayer last service was that you would forgive me for the idols that I've made in my life, my prayer this service is thank you for restoring me unto yourself. That I am a new creation, that the old is gone and the new is here. May I live transformed by the renewing of my mind so that all that I do would be good and pleasing and perfect in your sight and for your glory. Wrestle with us, Lord, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling and all for your glory. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's celebrate, church. Come on.